All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. It is great to see you here this morning, especially as uh, Jesse had mentioned. Uh, it's great to have people here on the Sunday following Christmas. You are what's known as the chosen ones, the remnant. You are serious. Or you were just lucky enough to not have to travel over the holidays. Uh, people ask me what I got my wife for Christmas. And this year, it was not going to Ohio to see my family, the greatest gift of all. And so you're either here this morning because you're lucky or because you're dedicated, but either way, it's great to be here with you this morning to share uh, in what God is doing at Mercy Hill. And to reward you uh, for your faithfulness, uh, I'm going to give you 19 steps to a great 2019. Just kidding, just kidding. I'm not doing that at all. Don't worry. We are sticking to the word and with a gospel focus and a focus on our Lord. With that being said, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you uh, once again for everyone gathered here today. God, thank you for the time of Advent season as we look forward to your arrival here on earth in the flesh. And as we once again look forward to your return, God, to make all things new and to restore justice and righteousness upon the earth. God, I pray as we look at this text we would not just see an example of good men or good people, but that we would see what you do in the lives of your faithful servants, that we would see your glory revealed through who you are, through your people, and let that glory be shown upon us and in us as well. So speaking of Christmas, um, did anybody encounter any issues buying presents I must be the only one. I hear one, one, uh, one empathetic laugh over here. Anybody else? Any issues shopping? Anybody else find this a hassle or a headache or just a burden to take care of? 
Thankfully for, for us married men, some of that burden is lifted in the aid of a wife who like gives care to these things, who sends out reminders, hey, uh, your mom would probably like something for Christmas too, don't forget about her uh, when you're shopping. Um, but at the same time, you, you got to make sure that you take care of that wife, you make sure you get her something important and something good and something meaningful to her as well. But one great aid I've noticed over the years in this Christmas shopping uh, is something called Amazon. <laughs> Anybody with me? Anybody thankful for Amazon as it comes to Christmas shopping? I got all my Christmas shopping done right from the comfort of my couch on the computer. But here's the thing. When you shop on Amazon, uh, you don't get to try out the product, okay? You're not physically holding anything, looking at anything, trying it on, whatever it may be. And so for me, it's really important when I'm shopping for my 93-year-old grandmother's compression socks to go off of what other people said about these compression socks. Do I get the purple? Do I get the pink? What size works for a 95-pound, 93-year-old woman? What should I do? And so for many of us, as we're shopping online, we, we have to put a little faith in the word and the verification of people who have gone before us, who can verify, yeah, I, I bought this product, this product's great. And so a lot of times you're looking for two things. You're looking for at least four out of five stars, right? If you're looking at a product and it has less than four stars, it's risky business. It's really risky. The thing is going to show up. It's going to be a knockoff version. It's going to be uh, made in Japan, which maybe that's not a big deal anymore. I don't know. But it's, it's not going to be what you hoped it would be. So you're looking for good reviews. But you're also looking for a decent number of reviews. So if something has high reviews, but it's like, I don't know, maybe 200 people liked it, you're a little skeptical. You're like, well, maybe this company paid 200 people to give them a positive review, right? But if you find a review for a gift that has like 30,000 reviews, right, you are trusting really that this product, what you're buying, what you're purchasing is going to be a great product. But really this, this verification, this process of hearing from other people about what has taken place, or about how good something may be that you're buying into is nothing new. It's not recent with Amazon or eBay. Really, this verification process has been going on for thousands of years. In the Old Testament, we, in the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says this in the law. It says, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Luke, in his meticulous appeal to the Jewish people, writing Luke and Acts, establishes the validity of Jesus as the Christ by detailing the validity of the people who are witnessing his greatness. And so you'll see in Luke, and you'll see in Acts, different narratives about the people who are bearing witness to who Jesus is. And so early on in the early life of Christ, you have this witness that is being told about Jesus, but not just being told about Jesus, but very specific things about him. As we know, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, even to every jot and tittle. 
And so as Luke is writing to this Jewish audience, he knows that there is going to be skepticism that this Christ, this crucified man, this risen man, was actually God's appointed Savior and Messiah for his people. One of the key components of that would have been that this Messiah of God was a true Jew. Was not only a true Jew, but that he was a faithful Jew. And that even back to things in his infancy had to be perfected. And so in this narrative, this story that we're looking into today, we see a couple different examples of Luke taking careful attention to show that careful attention was taken to Christ to establish his validity as a Messiah to the Jewish people. We see this right from the start when Luke establishes that Mary and Joseph were people of the law. It says in verse 22, it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called, to, shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here we see special care taken to follow the law. So in the verses preceding this, we see that after eight days, according to the law in Leviticus, uh, Jesus was circumcised. Had Jesus not been circumcised, he would have definitely been rejected. There would have been fault found in him as a pure, holy Sacrifice to God, the Messiah, the chosen one. But also we see and it moves on that after 40 days, the woman who had given birth to a male child had to come and offer sacrifice. Mary had come to do that and also to pay the five silver shekels to redeem the firstborn child according to the Old Testament law. So right away, Luke is establishing that the witnesses to Christ's validity as Messiah were good, reliable witnesses. They were people who were faithful to the law of Moses. They were people that, even though they were extremely poor, still followed the law, did not skirt it in any way, made sure that Christ uh, was circumcised, but also made sure that he was dedicated in the temple, that the sacrifice offered up for a newborn, for a firstborn son, was made, and that it was followed to the day. And so, as people are hearing this account of Jesus in the first century, they're seeing that Jesus' parents are good, faithful people. They're trustworthy people. And that their eyes, what they had witnessed, and their testimony about what they had seen would be known and trusted to be true. Because they're faithful people. They're devout people to the law of God. But also in the same way that Mary and Joseph are described as good and trustworthy witnesses, the next character of her story is described. Verse 25 says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now before Luke gets into any description about who Simeon is, about who this next witness is to Christ's uh, purification, to, to the strictness and following of the law perfectly uh, by Jesus, before he gets into the description, the validity of this witness, he says something pretty significant about Simeon. In the ESV, he says the word, now. 
All right? In other uh, readings, you'll see he says, behold. The Greek word is igu. It means to consider, to perceive, to take careful consideration what you are about to hear. And so before Luke gives us any details about this guy Simeon and why we should care about his testimony about Jesus, he tells us, take careful note about what I'm about to tell you about this man. Pay attention to his life. Pay attention to the details of who he is and who he was. Not often in the New Testament does someone get a igu, a behold, a now listen up. Here comes this great guy. But with Simeon, we we do get this. Luke gives special word to describe the special man in our story. And what follows this beholding? What follows this call to attention, this careful inspection of who this man is this description? It says that he was righteous. It means he was right with God. He was justified. But beyond that, he was just in his actions towards men and how he treated others. But it also describes him as devout. He was cautious or careful in obedience to God's law, which means he was not only a justified man, but a sanctified man. Oftentimes when we think about people, some of these descriptions can be given to them. But not oftentimes can we give both descriptions to one person. Charles Spurgeon said this about this description of Simeon. He says, there are many who say, I am just and upright. I never robbed a man in my life. I pay 20 shillings in the pound, and if anybody can find fault with my character, let him speak. Am I not just? But as for your religion, such a one will say, I do not care about it. Has no meaning to me. Sir, you have only one feature of a good man, and that the smallest. You do good towards men, but not towards God. You do not rob your fellow, but you rob your maker. Will a man rob God? Yes, and think far less of it than he would if he robbed man. He who robs man is called a villain. He who robs God is often called a gentleman. Simeon had both features of a Christian. He was just toward men. He was righteous, but he was devout in his faith. He was devout in his practice and his calling as a Jewish individual who was set apart from God. But beyond that, the description given is that he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. What that means is he was waiting on the Messiah, the Messiah that had been promised. At that time, there were different factions of Jewish people who interpreted the Old Testament in different ways. Some considered that the Messiah of God was coming and would come in the flesh and make all things right. That the people who ruled over them in wickedness, the Gentiles who were unpure, uh, would be crushed. That they would be judged and set aside. And there were some who read it more figuratively, like maybe. Maybe this Messiah will come. Maybe not. Maybe the end of things will come and then God will take care of everything. But for Simeon, he read the scriptures literally. He believed that God would send a Messiah in the flesh. He would send the Savior to the people of Israel. Not all Jewish people believed that. But the ones who did were described as a remnant. 
as ones who were faithful in their dealings with other people who were just, who were faithful in their religious practice and purification ceremonies and, and all those sort of things, but who also were looking for and hoping for this Savior to come and restore Israel to prominence, and restore Israel, uh, give Israel justice from their oppressors. But also a description given is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. When I come to the end of my life, I hope that some descriptions are given to me in the similar way that it's given to Simeon. I hope people can say that I was righteous, that I was devout, that I was always looking to the Lord, and that I was full of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was upon my life. No better description could be given to anyone No better description could I ask for of myself on that last day when I'm lowered down to the grave. Many people, their biographies are written and there's thousands of pages contained in them. Their diaries are gone through, dissected and seen about what you can pull out about special individuals throughout history. But here Luke in Acts just gives these few descriptions. He doesn't even say where Simeon's from, doesn't give his hometown, doesn't give his occupation. He just describes him as righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and also full of the Holy Spirit. But why did Luke paint this picture specifically about Simeon? Why did he use these words to describe this witness to Jesus following of the law. Well, the first is to show God's faithfulness to his promises. Well, what was the promise to Simeon? Verse 26 says this, it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Verse 26, we see that he was promised by the Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ. And in verse 27, we see the fulfillment of that promise. We don't know how much time went by in between when the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would see God's Messiah in the flesh. But we do know that God told him specifically through the Holy Spirit, this special revelation, you will not die until you see the Lord's Christ. Till you see the Lord's chosen one. This revelation sustained this devout and righteous Jew. This revelation sustained who he was. It gave him purpose in his life beyond that of just following the law and just honoring God with his life. It gave him a special purpose. And it's a special purpose that Simeon trusted in. That was faithful to, to understand and believe what God had said. In verse 27, we see that God fulfilled what he said he was going to do. Sometimes I picture uh, Simeon in the temple, kind of like an overzealous church greeter, right? So here we have Simeon, we have this promise, and we don't know any details. We don't know that God told him he was, that uh, the Christ was going to come in the form of a baby. We don't know if he said he was going to come in, in the form of this, like, 
great king, right? So maybe Simeon would just see the Christ from, uh, from, the, from the sidewalk as this great king enters the city uh, in power and in justice, ready to rule. We don't know, but we do know that based on the promise that God had given to him that he would see the Christ, that he was faithfully always looking. So on this day, the Holy Spirit led him to the temple, And at that time, I believe he's just talking to people, just trying to figure out, hear different stories about people. And so as he greets Mary and Joseph, out of what was probably thousands of people that day, he started to hear more and more about the story of who this Christ was. And as the Spirit led his steps and guided his steps to Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, the Spirit also opened up his eyes that this was the Christ. That this little child in front of him would be the consolation of Israel. And here we see it's significant and it's special because like I said, we don't know what he thought the Messiah would have been. But my guess is he wouldn't have guessed that the Messiah, one, would not only just be a child, at some point the Messiah would have to have been, but also the child of some poor, poor people from a nondescript town. Most of the time, the the sacrifice offered up for this newborn should have been like a lamb or a more precious or more expensive animal. But we see from this story, Mary and Joseph just offered up uh, some doves, some birds, the cheapest offering possible that you could give that was allowed for in the law for those people who lived in poverty. So Simeon, looking for this Christ, I would imagine had varying expectations. Probably had the expectation that this Christ was going to come from a powerful household, that he was going to come from a place of influence, an expectation, that he would come from uh, Jerusalem, possibly. But this Christ came from Nazareth. He came from the poorest of the poor, from those who couldn't even afford what was usually described as a standard sacrifice and burnt offering. It's important to notice this because it shows the reliance and the power of the Holy Spirit to show to us and to reveal to us Christ and the beauty of who this Christ is and to show to us the importance of Jesus. We are no different today. For our eyes to be open to the glory of Christ, for our eyes to understand the salvation that God has given to us, it requires a work and a leading and a moving of the Holy Spirit. It requires that to be saved, but it also requires that within our salvation, within our worship, within our daily living, to look to Him and submit our lives to them, it requires a leading of the Spirit. So like Simeon, we must be led by the Spirit. First Corinthians 2, 11 through 12 says this, it says, So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. John sixteen fourteen 
echoes similarly, he will glorify me by taking from what is mine and disclosing it to you, speaking of the Spirit. But the second reason that Simeon is highlighted by Luke is to give weight to the praise that Simeon gives to God. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I grew up in church, and I grew up around people who were always telling me things about God, but as I inspected their life, I was not impressed with what they were saying. You could tell me how great your Christ was, but if you weren't righteous, if you weren't devout, if you weren't filled with the Spirit, I could tell. I was in church uh, four days old, right? Four days old, up to 17 when I gave my life to Christ. I could tell when people were faking it. I had to go to Christian schools. I had to adhere to dressing the right way. I had detention sometimes for not wearing a tie on Wednesdays, right? So I was used to this Christian culture and people talking about God and, and telling me all the things I should think about him, right? But as I looked at their life, the validity of what they said didn't mean much to me. But with his story, Simeon's about to give praise and to declare who this Jesus is. And Luke has taken careful account to show us the validity of this man who's speaking these words so that the words would be valid to us and in our hearts. And that we would believe and perceive what he's saying as true. So what was this praise that Simeon gave to this baby that he beheld, that he was holding? Verse 29 says this, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Upon seeing Christ, Simeon declared the salvation to all peoples. He declared the, the light for revelation to the Gentiles and to declare glory to the people of Israel. Why is this praise significant coming from Simeon's lip, lips? Specifically, it's significant because of the mention given about the Gentile peoples, about salvation to all peoples. A devout and righteous Jew would have expected a savior for the Jewish people. But they weren't always hoping for a savior for their oppressors. What do their oppressors need saved from? They have all the power. They have all the authority. They have all the influence. What do they need saved from? But Simeon, in his declaration of worship, his prophetic praise about who this baby was that he was holding found peace in his declaration. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This echoes Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He can finally die happy. This is significant that he says that he can die happy because what he goes on to say about Christ is probably not going to bring much peace to most Jewish, Jewish people of that day. What he says about this baby is probably troubling, and it's probably initially troubling to himself. 
It's troubling to first century Jews who expected the consolation to come in the form of the destruction of their oppressors, not in the salvation of their oppressors. But he says, this baby, this Christ, is a light of salvation for all peoples. Yet even in this, Simeon found peace. This is what John MacArthur says. He says, the remnant of Israel, even the serious students of the Old Testament, the believers had animosity towards Gentiles. I don't mean by that that they had animosity toward an individual Gentile, but they hated what the Gentiles stood for. Anti-God, anti-Scripture, desecration of the true and living God, violation of the first and greatest commandment to love your, the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were violators of the first commandment to have any other God, violators of making images, making no images commandment. They were, and they saw them as violators of God's commands. The Gentiles were blasphemers. They resented them for their idols, and the purer the remnant was, the more that resentment grew. John MacArthur's making the case that Simeon most likely not only did not care for Gentile people, but there's a good chance there was just this like innate detestation for the Gentiles. And for good reason, right? But the salvation mentioned, the salvation described of this Christ was a little bit different than what the expectation was. And this salvation described was far greater far greater than being liberated and freed from their oppressors, from destruction coming to those that held them down. This salvation was different. This is a salvation that restores the lost, that brings them home, that brings those who are away and far off close and near to God. This is a salvation that doesn't free people just from physical bondage, but that frees all people from their sins. This revelation of this salvation was all Simeon could have hoped for and more. Now, this salvation is not a foreign concept. Simeon should not have been surprised by his words, and I imagine the Spirit comforted him in the words that he was saying. Isaiah 9-2 says this, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Isaiah 42, 6, the Lord speaking to his servant Christ says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Really, this just gets to the heart of what the gospel is for us, for each and every individual in this room. Because the gospel is this salvation. It's this eternal salvation. It's this being made right with God. It's being drawn close to him when we are away and far off. When we are his enemies, we are now reconciled as his sons and daughters. This gospel is all that we need in life for peace. How true is this when things are going bad in our life? 
when sickness strikes, when calamity strikes? Do you still have peace? When your oppressors are still your oppressors and are still going to be your oppressors for many years to come, and there's no change in sight, that you may die in captivity. Is the salvation that God offers you enough? Is this peace with God enough to bring you peace in the midst of your circumstances and settings that may not get better, that may not change? All this comes down to what our hope is. For many of us, our hope is in a lot of things Plus Jesus, right? And I'm not immune to this. I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm preaching to myself. Our hope can be placed in maybe our career, our job, our family, our prominence in the community, how we're looked at by other people, the successes and failures that we've had in relationships. As we can build those things up. If we can finally be free from those that oppress us. If we can finally be free from those things that hold us down. And those people that wound us. Then we can have peace. The gospel is not a promise of a restoration and a fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. The gospel is a revelation and a light that salvation has come through Jesus Christ. That the salvation he offers you is the greatest gift he could give you. Better than any promotion, better than any raise. Better than all our hopes and dreams. Is this promise from God to bring his people to himself. The gospel is clear. I'm not trying to discredit many benefits that come from believing, repenting, from being in a faith community, from following the laws of God. There are a great many blessings that come from living righteously, from following God's word. I try to tell my two-year-old all the time, Listen to dad, you want a long life, right? Obey me. It's going to go well for you, right? If it doesn't, it's going to go bad for you. It's going to go bad really soon, right? I'm not trying to discredit that. But when those things don't come, those things that we have our hope in other than our salvation in Christ, we can lose our peace. We can lose our appreciation For who he is. But we must be like Simeon. We must desire to follow his example. That in spite of what our expectations may be. That ultimately knowing Christ and being reconciled to God. Is of most importance. That a salvation that does not produce peace. Is a salvation based on hope. And things that do not save. I'll say that again. A salvation that does not produce peace is a salvation based on hope and things that do not save. And this brings me 
to my last point. For some people, the gospel is of no consequence. Or worse, it's something that is to be mocked and rejected. Luke 2, verse 34 and 35, Simeon gives this prophecy. It's really one of the first negative things that we experience in Luke. He says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I recently read about a guy who took his friend on a tour in Paris to the Louvre. Uh, He showed him all this art. Uh, He showed him the concert hall in Paris. Heard a great symphony. And at the end of the the day, he asked his friend, what do you think? And his friend said, I wasn't that impressed. To which his friend said, if it's any consolation to you, the museum and its art were not on trial and neither was the symphony. Sorry, that's a hard one. You were on trial. History has already judged the greatness of those works of art and the greatness of that music. All that is revealed by your attitude is the smallness of your own appreciation. Luke gives special and careful detail to those who appreciated who Christ was. To those who have gone before us and have seen his salvation, this restoration to our God, this peace to our God through the reconciliation, life, death, and burial, resurrection of Christ on our behalf, and have valued it greatly. Who have found peace in this message of hope, who found peace in this Christ that saves us from our sins. Simeon gives the warning. There's some people who won't think much of this guy at all. There's some people that will be opposed. And there's some people that will be exposed by their reaction to this gospel, to this Savior, to this salvation that comes from this Christ. We have to ask ourselves today, What is our response to this Savior? What is our response to this gospel? Where is our hope? And when life comes and our expectations aren't met, do we go back to what God has revealed? Do we go back to the first things? Do we go back to the joy of our salvation? To be a sinner saved by grace. Now living for the glory of God. You can do that in any circumstance, in any situation. You can actually do it even better. You can be a brighter light even in your sufferings. We either come to this gospel of Christ with rejection, hostility, or apathy. We come to this gospel of Christ as an add-on 
to what our hearts really desire and just hope that God is pleased with that. Or we can come to this gospel, this revelation of who Jesus is in the same way as Simeon did. And through his example, we will find peace by living righteously, by being devout, and by being led of the Spirit of God. As John comes forward, and we go into a time of of worship and conclusion, I want us to take special note of Simeon and then apply it to ourselves. We must look at Simeon's eyes as he was looking for the Christ. God fulfilled his promise. As we sing and worship, as we are looking in expectation to the Savior of ours, we must trust that God is faithful. We must trust that he's true to his word, that he's true to his promise. But we must be looking. We must be looking to Him as He's already been revealed to us. Keep your eyes on Christ for in that you will find peace through every situation. But we must also look at His lips. For not only did His eyes see the salvation of God and peace was the result But his lips gave praise to the sovereign Lord for being faithful to his word. We follow the example of Simeon by singing and declaring and bearing witness to this great Savior that we've seen and that we know. But lastly, we must look to our hearts. In the same way that Simeon experienced peace through the salvation of God, we have to ask ourselves if there's peace missing in our hearts. Is it because our hope is in things that will never bring peace? Is it because our focus and our eyes and our lips have been speaking of and looking to things that will never fulfill, that only God can do? So today as we go into worship, Consider our eyes. Consider the things that we've set our hearts on. Consider the things that we desire and how much hope we placed in them. But look to our lips and just ask, when we sing, are we singing at all? When we worship, are we really worshiping based on what we've seen? Not just in unison with everybody else because it'll look weird if you're there stone, stone cold and somebody's raising their hands and singing loudly. It's not why we sing. We sing because of who he is, what he's done, and what we've seen of him. And lastly, check our hearts. Is there peace in our hearts? Scripture promises that a peace that passes all understanding comes to those who place their trust in God. This morning, if we don't have peace, I invite you to lay whatever that thing is, the unforgiveness, the hopes, place it in God's hands. 
and trust him and trust that his salvation is enough. Trust that knowing him and being known by him is enough. It's all that we need.